Um, well, let's go ahead and uh, we will look at this portion of Luke. And uh, as we do it, as always, I just want to pause and pray um, as we uh, begin the study. Um, dear God, I do ask that you would be good to us as we look into your word. Pray that this would be time well spent in your sight and that we would uh, gain insight and that even where uh, what we look at may be familiar, that we would hear it again, that we would hear it in a new way. That we would hear both the challenge and the comfort of Luke's gospel and even more so of Christ's um, presence and teaching. We thank you that we can look to you and we offer this time up to you in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we looked at uh, the portions of Luke that are in some sense doubled in Matthew's gospel. Um, and we sort of saw a range of possibilities in there. Uh, we saw some passages that look similar but are probably different, or at least different episodes, different um, occasions, uh, and then some that are similar and perhaps the same, um, but Matthew and Luke locate them at different points in the narrative. Um, and then we saw some that are pretty clearly the same, and, and finally we saw some that are pretty much word to word, word for word the same, and we talked a little bit about the question of sources and how Matthew and Luke would be utilizing these sources and including the idea of oral traditions that are well established by the time that these people are actually writing their gospel accounts. Um, what I want to do today is turn to that same section from chapter nine to 19, really. It's a big section and probably too big to be looking at at a single blow, but um, forgive me for that. And thank you for hanging in there. Um, but, but this time, look at what is unique to Luke. Portions of Luke where he is adding something and neither Matthew nor Mark nor John included in their gospels. Um, as we've said before in Luke, I think what he's doing is that he's got Mark and Matthew in front of him and some other sources, it would seem. And then um, he recognizes there's going to be confusion for the reader. So he is clarifying things as to how Mac, Mark and Matthew would line up with each other. And and what Luke does seem to be wanting to do is giving us more of a chronological telling. I'd be cautious about that. There are several points at which Luke will introduce a story or an episode with a phrase like, one day Jesus did this or that, and around this time Jesus did this or that. And so there's there's always some room for movement here. And again, first century historians are not going to be writing in the style of 21st century or 20th century historians. But still, I think we've got a sense that Luke is ordering his material chronologically. And then the other thing he's doing wonderfully is adding some material. You know, you can think all the way back to the beginning of his gospel, and you've got additions like the birth narratives of, of John and of Jesus. While there's some of that in Matthew, and Matthew has it telling sort of from Jacob's view, it would seem, or from Joseph's view, um, Luke gives us this wonderful addition um, in Luke 1 and 2 of the birth narratives. And, and so there are, there are places like this along the way where Luke does this wonderful uh, additive work. And we'll certainly see it in what we're looking at here, beginning in chapter 9. What I'd like to do is just kind of work our way through it. And let me ask you to be thinking about what, what, the, what is the character of Luke's gospel? 
and, and maybe more to the point, how does Christ appear in this? What, what is what is the character of Christ and his kingdom, of Christ as the king and of his kingdom that he is introducing? What What is the character of Christ himself as we meet him in Luke and as he develops the story from that point of the profession of faith by Peter and the transfiguration all the way through uh, to that in this whole section, um, what is the character of, of Christ? And then what specific themes does Luke develop or issues does he engage that maybe in a sense distinguish his gospel? Um, so, so I do want to just kind of read through some of this and, um, enjoy some of these additions and let them sink in. It does certainly include some of what I think we would find is, is, um, best known of the Gospels, including people who may know very little of the Gospels, they will know, for instance, the story of the Good Samaritan. And we get that from from Luke. But start in chapter 9. It's important to have a a Bible open in front of you here. Um, So uh, open to Luke 9. We've finished with the profession of faith, with the transfiguration. Down in verse 51 then. It came about when the days were approaching for his raising up that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so you've got that context. Now, all three Gospels have have suggested that Jesus knows he is now moving toward the cross. Luke is the one that gives us this image of the exodus that Jesus is on, that he's about to complete in Jerusalem. And here in verse 51, this additional comment in Luke He has resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Luke frames this entire eight or nine chapters in that framework of going to Jerusalem. We start with this somewhat bizarre moment that some Samaritans are resistant to letting people pass through heading toward Jerusalem. They resist him. John and James come up with a great idea that we can bring fire down from heaven. Jesus thinks that, in fact, is actually not a good idea. And then you have these three people who come to follow Jesus, but kind of want to fudge a little bit. Um, two of these we saw in Matthew's gospel, but I mention them here partly because it's an interesting um, example of how Luke and Matthew do stand in parallel to each other. Remember the way Matthew develops things is he's got this great big sermon manifesto at the very beginning in chapters five to seven. And, and, and in that sermon, then Jesus appears as the Christ, the king introducing his kingdom, declaring the nature of the kingdom, demonstrating his authority as the king of this kingdom and as the Messiah. And then as we go into chapters eight and nine, uh, we start that building toward the profession of faith on the part of Peter. And as as Matthew starts there after the sermon, he has two of these uh, instances. Someone comes along and says, I will follow you. And Jesus says, well, be careful. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He says to another, follow me. And that person says, but let me go and bury my father first. And Jesus says, no, come now. And then Luke adds this third one, which is unique to Luke. I will follow you, Lord, but permit me first to go say goodbye. 
Jesus says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Matthew puts those in after the Sermon on the Mount as if to introduce this question of what does it mean to follow Jesus and to take him seriously. Luke inserts it here after the profession of faith and uses that profession as kind of a starting point to continue to develop the narrative. I I do think there is something significant here that Luke is doing like Matthew did, where he's saying, this is to be taken with the utmost seriousness. <laughs> Jesus is to be taken with the utmost seriousness. What does it mean to follow him? What kind of kingdom does he call us to? What does he call, what way of life does he call us to as his followers? So then, as, as Luke takes off, he, he tells us about Jesus sending out 70 others in addition to the 12. Um, and that is unique to Luke, but everything that's included here in the instructions, pretty much, you can find in Matthew as instruction to the 12. So the instructions are going to be similar for both the 12 and the 70. And then when they return in verse 17, we have this statement that they were excited about the fact that demons were even subject to them. And Jesus says, I have seen Satan falling from heaven like lightning. But I'll tell you, don't rejoice so much that the spirits are subject to you, but that your names are recorded in heaven. What follows there um, is with um, it can be found in the other uh, Gospels. And then the second half of chapter 10 is this young lawyer comes up to him and says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is verse 25 of chapter 10. And I want to go ahead and just read this as familiar as it is. Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered well, do this and you will live. But just wishing to justify himself, the man said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied by saying, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. By chance... A certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put the man on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's 
quite a story, isn't it? And I got to say, it's one of those points at which Jesus as a teacher strikes me as just the most gifted kind of teacher. Did he already have this story in his head? Had he told it before? Had he created it at some point? Or, or was he ready in the moment just to spin this little yarn and do it in such a way to, to capture his interrogator? And offer just what's needed. What, you know, let me pause here. Just ask, what strikes you about this parable as to how it demonstrates the character of Christ? How, how is Jesus' own character being revealed in this little story? Do, do you have a thought? Does it make sense? What does it say about Jesus? Uh, one thing that I hadn't considered before is how it shows his mercy and grace. Um, and that like when we talk about this parable, we always talk about how the, the climax is an utter shock. The Samaritan was the one, uh, those dirty Samaritans who would have, uh, been the neighbor. Um, but that Jesus would, uh, not only have that kind of person be the pro- protagonist due to the, the general kind of, of, of tension, uh, in the region, but also due to his personal experience. He was just a few, uh, episodes ago rejected by them. And yet he, uh, d- does not let that keep him from letting them be the exemplar in this passage here. And so though it's not in the context of the specific parable itself, it speaks to Jesus's grace um, that he would have the Samaritan be the leading role. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for connecting it to that little episode that we saw just earlier in that chapter or in chapter nine. Yeah. John and James are ready to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans and you know, so quickly after Jesus is using the Samaritan, yeah, as the exemplar. Yeah, and I think the Samaritan personifies Jesus too, doesn't doesn't he? That this is what Jesus does. He stops. And the bad guys are the religious people. <laughs> it is interesting. He does draw this line between the, the people who look good and who reject him and the needy and the rejected ones to whom he extends a hand. There is this curious twist at the end of the story, too, where the, the, the man asking the question that leads to the story has asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus concludes by saying, by asking, who has been a neighbor to the man in the ditch? And so you've got a, a two-layered answer to the question of who is my neighbor. One, my neighbor is the person in the ditch. And the question of whether I care for the person in the ditch is absolutely at the heart 
of what Jesus cares about. But then the second layer is that Samaritan is your neighbor, that one whom you least want to be the example. That's your neighbor. And it is brilliantly done here. I don't know who that neighbor needs to be for you or me right now, but in the privacy of your own thoughts and heart, who is it that you least want Jesus to point to and use as the example for how he wants you to live? That you, We've at least got to understand that's what he's doing here. Um, so have the integrity to insert whoever it needs to be for that Samaritan that you least want to have as the example for how to live. The next little bit is also unique to Luke, and that is that um, as they were traveling along, it would seem in very much a similar time as to the sharing of this story, they entered a certain village in verse 38, chapter 10, And there was a certain woman named Martha who welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary. And Mary was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Will you please tell her to help me? But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Just a few things are really necessary and really only one. And Mary has chosen that good part and it shall not be taken away from her. And I'll just go ahead and say, I think this is one of those points where Luke, I mean, I'm just so glad we've got Luke um, for, for several reasons, but but part of it is is that he puts those two little stories together. Isn't that interesting? The, the the certainly one of the emphases of the story about the Good Samaritan is you, you need to do something. You need to care. You need to act. You need to get on the street where people are lying in the ditch and do something about it. So it's a call to action. And now he's, he's, he visits the home of Mary and Martha. Martha is acting. She's doing things that need to be done to, to serve Jesus lunch. And Mary's just sitting there listening to Jesus talk. And now sitting there listening to Jesus talk instead of acting is exactly what Jesus says is right. I love the juxtaposition of these two episodes and, and that they need each other. The two episodes need each other. If we are to be the kind of people who pay attention to the person in the ditch, then we need to be the kind of people who sit at Jesus's feet and listen to his word and let him shape our thinking and form our hearts and give us eyes that see and ears that hear and a sensitivity to the needs that he is sensitive to. And so I ask myself, okay, where, where in my life do I sit at the feet of Jesus? 
And how does that happen? So that when I rise from that place and I go out in the road, my heart is ready to engage the needs that are there. And that I will even choose to go down the road where there is the need. I'm not sure just how the Good Samaritan story hits you or how it needs to hit you. I I know for me personally, it's I I stay away from the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I know it's a dangerous road. It's got cliffs and wild animals and robbers, and it's not a safe place to go. I'm not going to go down that road. And so I can safely stay away from certain needs that may scare me. But if we will, if we will sit and listen to Jesus and let him shape our hearts, then maybe our fears will lead us to, to work, live by faith and that faith find expression in actions that are rooted in the heart of Jesus. But it is fascinating that Luke has those two things alongside each other. Uh, as we go into chapters 11 and 12, um, There's a lot in Luke that's in the other Gospels, a lot that uh, sounds like the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 11. Um, There is a section in Luke 11, the second half of it, beginning of verse 42, where Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee and he starts pronouncing these woes on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and their wrongful ways. And then in verse 52, he picks up on the lawyers. Um, there is a section very similar to that in Matthew 23. And so it sort of brings us back to where we were last week on whether it's the same or different. I'm inclined to think Jesus said some of these things more than once. Matthew includes them in that final week. And there's enough differences between the two that would suggest it. Um, but there are striking similarities too. Uh, Luke has it here as part of the development of the narrative and part of the development of the tension. And you've definitely got attention that's developing here. Um, in chapter 12, we do have another one of Luke's parables. And, and I would say a lot of the additional material from Luke is the is in the form of the stories. Um, in verse 13 of chapter 12, someone in the crowd says, teacher, will you please tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me? And Jesus says to him, uh, Excuse me, but I, you know, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? I, I, I am not going to make that determination for you. Um, it, it, I gotta say that was as short as that one is. It, it catches my attention even in reading it. Um, that my prayers often sound like this. <laughs> Jesus, will you please make sure this works out right for me? Uh, it's uh, embarrassing to think of the nature of our prayers sometimes. And Jesus says, no, that, uh, this is not what I am in the business of doing, uh, honestly. And then he goes on from that, where the concern is with the inheritance that's due me. In verse 15, be, beware. Be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance, does life consist of those possessions. And he goes on to tell them this story. 
The land of a certain rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him, You fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. And then who will own what you have stored up? So is the man who lays treasure up for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, more with just little bits that are unique to Luke, a phrase or a line here and there. Um, and then on into chapter 13. Just sort of try to keep these things in mind and be asking yourself, what's the character of Jesus? Yeah, let's, let's pause actually. Just even after that, what, what additionally does that teach you about Jesus's concerns? What we just read there. A little parable. seems that Jesus cares about the things that we don't care enough about. Like that man was not asking Jesus if he was greedy. He didn't say, Jesus, uh, do you think I'm greedy? Um, but Jesus was like, I'm going to be real with you, man. This is what you need to pay attention to. And then told that parable. And so it seems that, that Jesus cares enough about us to... Uh, bring to the fore the things that we would rather ignore or think that we're just fine in because <laughs> um, he does not want us to um, settle for less yeah he's always turning things upside down isn't he I mean even when we think of the good Samaritan or Mary and Martha he's, he's he keeps flipping things on us unsettling us Asking the right question. That's a great way to put it. Where we might be asking the wrong question. He's asking the right one. I love that the way he uses the imagery of wealth too, that don't lay up treasures for yourself and elsewhere it's treasures that rust and where moth corrupts. Um, but be rich toward God. And that directs us to the inner person, doesn't it? In the parts that Luke shares with, with Matthew, it, it includes the, that question of the leaven of the Pharisees. It includes the, the question of the inner self and what flows from within, as opposed to just how a person looks from the outside. Um, lay up treasure. For God, be rich toward God. Yeah, uh, in chapter 13, they come to him at the beginning of chapter 13. Um, <clears throat> on the same occasion as he's been talking about in chapter 12, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This gives you an idea of the character of people like Pilate and Herod at the time, where there were just these horrific, awful 
acts of abuse, terrible things. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than others because they suffered this fate? I tell you not. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all those who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. We all know these instances like the falling of a tower, an earthquake, a car accident, whatever it might be where someone is suddenly taken. And Jesus is saying that, that, that one of the things these episodes ought to do is, is remind us that, as it were, the, the bell tolls for you. You too will perish. The way to be ready for death when it is not here, or the way to be ready for death when it comes is to be ready for death when it has not yet come. And then he tells this parable. A certain man had a fig tree, which he had planted in his vineyard, and he came to look for fruit on it and didn't find any. So he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I've been coming, looking for fruit on this fig tree and finding nothing. Cut it down. Why does it even use up ground? But the steward of the vineyard said, leave it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, fine. And if it doesn't, we'll cut it down. Jesus's patience, his expectations, and his patience. There's then a Sabbath episode, much like the ones we find in the other Gospels, but this is this is a unique to Luke, a woman who has been ill for a long time. And uh, Jesus makes the same point here that he does in the other Gospels. Um, Shall we not care for such a person on the Sabbath day? Is the Sabbath not meant for healing and mercy? It does increase the tension between Jesus and the temple leadership, though the multitudes are rejoicing. You go on into the end of that chapter and at the end of chapter 13. And again, there are some smaller bits that I'm not not trying to pull out every little bit of what's unique to Luke. But um, this one, though short, is worth noting again, I think, at uh, verse 31 of chapter 13. Some Pharisees actually come up saying to him, get away from here. Herod is trying to find you to kill you. Jesus says, well, go tell that fox, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will reach my goal. A veiled reference to his resurrection. And then he says, but nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Again, that Lucan framework we are on our way to jerusalem jesus is completing his exodus he is walking through the wilderness as it were on his way to accomplish what he came to do and then the lament over jerusalem follows another sabbath episode at the beginning of chapter 14 
Um, and then there is this um, verse seven and following. Um, he began speaking a parable to the invited guests at a luncheon that he's at when he notices that they all try to pick out the places of honor at the table. He said to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, excuse me, can you please give your place to this man? And then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the last place. So when you're invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up to this place. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He goes on to give another little reception uh, feast kind of an image and encourages people to invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind. Another one follows in that chapter. Again, there's a similarity in Matthew, enough different that probably this one is unique and different from Matthew's. Um, But these images of the feast are always striking. Various implications. Here, the first one has to do with how you come to the table. Come humbly. Appreciatively, humbly. And then when you... When you offer a feast, don't just invite those who are wealthy and will be able to return the favor. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And then the next image is that of the sort of marriage feast of the lamb, really. And who will be included? That those who are invited make excuses. And again, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame will be invited in. People from the hedges and the highways, from the ditches, will end up filling the places at the table. The the cluster of uh, feast-related images is is interesting, and it makes more than the one point, doesn't it? At the end of that section, then, he, he calls people to calculate the cost. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? What king doesn't assess whether he can go out to battle and succeed? You need to count the cost. And in verse 33, the cost is great. No one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. What more are we hearing from Jesus in these teachings that we've just sort of been through? The call is to the outsider. The call is to the humble. To the needy. And the continued resolution of Jesus to complete his exodus in Jerusalem. In chapter 15, then, um, we get a couple more of Jesus' best-known stories, particularly the one. Uh, There are three stories here about finding the lost. The first one is about the sheep, the hundred sheep, and one sheep is lost and uh, then found. This is in Matthew, as we saw a week ago or two weeks ago. Um, 
and then you've got these lines at the end of each of these episodes um, about the rejoicing over the lost. Verse 6 of chapter 15, when um, the shepherd then comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then the woman losing the coins and searching everywhere until she finds it in verse 9, invites the neighbors to rejoice. I have found what I have lost. In the same way, there will be joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then this well-known story, and again, I do just want to go ahead and and read it. Um, And again, he says, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so the father divided his wealth between his sons. And not many days later, that younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And his son was longing to fill his own stomach with the food of the swine, and no one was giving anything to him. He was eating the leftovers of the swine. And he came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt a compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, oh, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. And let us eat and be married. Mary, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and was inquiring what was going on. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But this brother became angry and was not willing to go in. His father came out and was entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. You've never given me a kid that I might be married with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. His father said to him, Oh, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to make merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead. And now he lives. He was lost 
and is now found. What most strikes you about that parable and what does it reveal about Christ? There's a lot you could take away from it, that's for sure. Any thoughts? Yeah, there's two sons to track with here, aren't there? And it's interesting. It struck me even as I read it there that that's how it begins. Jesus' first line is, a certain man had two sons. We think of this as the as the prodigal son or the story of the prodigal son or something. Um, but Jesus introduces it as a story about two sons. Yeah. Yeah, the second son not recognizing his father's love for what it was. And that it is a compassion that he extends to both sons, isn't it? It finds different expression. One of the things that strikes me in this is, um, is the call to repentance that it includes to, to a reliance on the mercies of God. Um, when the son comes to his senses, he says, I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you or in your sight or something. It is, it is striking. And, and then when he gets to his father, he's, he does do that. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called a son. Um, you know, David says in Psalm 51, that against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And it's a striking line because not only has a man's marriage been destroyed and his wife taken, but the man is now dead. And then David says against you and you only have I sinned. And I, and I think though that there's an important truth to it that sin is against God, but it's the people in our lives who suffer from our sin and who feel the weight of it and the loss of it and the hurt of it. And so the sin is against heaven, but the father is the one who has suffered. So. And of course, the son himself has suffered. And then you have this wonderful compassion of the father, just welcoming him back in. He was, my son was dead and now he lives. What stood out to me on this reading about, what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about the father? It's just like his, his patience. I had never really thought about it before, but as you were reading it, Richard, it made me think of just like the amount of time that that would have passed um, for like probably would have taken him a few months to go to whatever a faraway country is to travel on the travel that they had then with all of the riches and wealth that he was taking with him. Um, and then to be gone long enough to lose, uh, to squander all of the riches and long enough for a famine to arise which doesn't just happen overnight um and then long enough for him to make the journey back which would admittedly probably be with a bit more haste than the journey away um but just however long that was that the father um didn't stop looking for for the son that the father was the one who saw the son coming on on the horizon um 
essentially that the father hadn't forgotten about the son and that in the same way, like the father's even longer patience with the other brother where like that the younger son was only gone for however long that he was gone for. Um, but I would imagine that the, uh, um, the latent disdain of the older son would have also predated, which I guess is true of the younger son too, but just that he also put up with the older son, knowing that the older son only saw him, uh, for his stuff and didn't appreciate the love that he was giving his older son day in and day out. And yet in spite of this long absence of the younger son and the long, I don't know, like emotional absence of the older son, he's still ready to be there for both of them after all those years. It's interesting that this older brother does not share his father's heart of compassion for the for the younger brother, um, the one hopes he is being drawn to see it and and drawn into his father's compassion, huh? Um, yeah, I, yeah, Inter- yeah. Good, thank you. It's interesting in verse twenty eight. Uh, the father goes out to the son to, to the older brother. It's like uh, he. He goes out to entreat him. I, I want you here. There is that same love for the older brother as for the younger. And, and again, we've got the picture of the of the older brother is the religious the religious brother. He is, you know, I, I mean, for me, the, you know, the 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 parable of the Good Samaritan. It is. It's not just the priest and the Levite who are going down the street. It is the Presbyterian pastor and the director of the Christian Study Center who are going down the street. And because they're very busy, godly people who are disciplined and know what on the, is on the schedule that day, they hurry on to their meetings and their appointments. And so they do not stop for the person in the ditch. Um, and, and so for me, the older brother is, again, this this Pharisee, this Levite, this Christian study center director kind of person. Um, I am by trade, both a Pharisee and a scribe. And I am, I hope, at least somewhat aware of the vocational hazards that come with those callings. Um, and I am sympathetic to Pharisees and scribes. I'm always glad to see, you know, these occasional moments where, where Joseph of Arimathea shows up and, and cares about Jesus's body or where these Pharisees come to Jesus and say, look, man, you got to get out of here. Herod's trying to kill you. That, that the Pharisees themselves were divided. That there, they, they, there were Pharisees who became followers of Jesus. And that's my hope as well. Um, that I would not have a hardened heart at the mercies of God and Christ that are poured out in such lavish and wonderful ways, but that I would enter into the celebrations of heaven when one sinner repents and returns home, and that I would join in that chorus of, I have sinned against heaven and hurt you, whoever you may be. I am no longer worthy to be called a son. 
and then have the Father welcome me. Uh, just to finish out, um, a couple more distinctive portions of Luke. Um, beginning of chapter 16, I hesitate to, to spend too much time on it, is one of Jesus's most curious bits of teaching, where there's the example of a shrewd manager who, because he's apparently been lo- about to lose his job, um, decides he's going to falsify accounts and... Um, and then his own boss actually commends him for it. And then Jesus tries to, or what does Jesus do with that? It's a, it's a curious question. There's no two ways about it. Um, part of what he does seem to be saying is, um, there, there are, there are right and shrewd and wise ways to engage with the stuff of this world, with, with wealth, with material riches and, and goods learn, grow. But I think in verse 10, he does kind of make a turning here. And, and so the, the, the manager in that story ceases to be an example of how to live and becomes an example of someone who is actually unfaithful in his work. And so Jesus then calls his followers to be faithful in the little that they might be entrusted with much. And then the conclusion of it is that no one can serve two masters in verse 13. You cannot serve both God and money and the stuff it buys. Those who love money are scoffing at him. And Jesus says, well, God knows your hearts. And that little exchange is also unique to Luke. Another bit that's unique to Luke is the story of the rich man and of the poor man, Lazarus, who was at his gate, covered with sores and ignored by the wealthy man. They both die. The poor man passes over to Abraham's bosom. The rich man into Hades. And receives. The just reward of his indifference. He begs that Abraham would send a message to his own brothers and friends. Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. He says, no, but if someone will rise from the dead, they will repent. No, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And again, a anticipation of the risen Christ and the question of whether people would believe even in the face of a risen Christ. Um, and then um, the healing of the lepers and the question of gratitude, of being thankful and not being thankful. And then um, in chapter 18, um, uh, just one last uh, distinctive of Luke to point to, and that is it's the very last thing that we have in Luke before we have the Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, narratives all rejoin. And that is in verse 9 of chapter 18 that Jesus tells this parable to certain who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with disdain. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a despised tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, 
God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift his eyes up to heaven and was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. That's Luke's last addition before the narratives rejoin. And and I will say, just kind of by way of conclusion here, if it hasn't struck you, Jesus is just an extraordinary teacher. I, these are very quick little stories. And there are good reasons why 2,000 years later, we're still talking about them. They are so concise, so to the point, so extraordinarily well-crafted. They, they strike me as always being really pretty spontaneous. He's just this kind of reflective, observant, wise teacher. Um, he loves the Lord, his God, with his whole mind. And so there is this awareness, this thoughtfulness, this creativity. And, and then, and you get little parables like this. How do you escape this little parable? I mean, if you ever thought about it, you read it and you go, yeah, boy, I am so thankful. I am not like that Pharisee. <laughs> you go, oh, oh, wait a minute. Let's see. I think that's exactly the point of the story, isn't it? Ah. Uh, what what does one do? Hesitate even to lift your eyes up to heaven, beat on your breast and say, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Not as a way of posing or posturing or making you feel good about yourself or think you are better than the next person, but as a genuine stance before God. To be truly humbled before him. And I do think that is one of Luke's central motifs in all of this. Jesus turns things upside down. Jesus calls for a seriousness, for an utter giving up. And there is there is a humbling that he's calling us to. But at every point, there is this invitation about it into this good place, into a place of comfort, of life, of the presence of Christ himself. Where if you have the presence of Jesus, you need no more. Probably the one other um, bit that's unique to Zacchaeus or to Luke is the story of Zacchaeus in chapter 19 as they are going through Jericho and up. It is one more instance as well of Jesus's siding with the poor, with seeking justice for them, for fairness. but also with the outsider, including in this case, the rich outsider, Zacchaeus, who is despised for his ill-gotten wealth. And Jesus stops in his home and says, salvation has come to this home this day. 
Um, I do encourage you. I, you know, part of what I hope people take away from this class is, is um, more and more just of a sense of the lay of the land of the Gospels and how they pan out, and, and even specific kind of references. Um, in Luke, these distinctives, uh, I find my, my own mind drawn particularly to chapters 10 and 15. Chapter 10 is the Samaritan and the visit to Martha and Mary's home. Chapter 15 are the parables of the lost who are found and the rejoicing in heaven. Um, and then you might want to just kind of go from there to some of these others uh, that are also so uh, powerful. Um, but but I hope this has been a good 15 minutes well spent of just reflecting on this very rich portion of Luke's gospel and of all that it offers I am so glad we've got four Gospels. <laughs> and and Luke is a wonderful example of why I say that, because it would be great if all we had were Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But, I mean, sorry, Matthew, Mark, and John. But, but we do also have Luke. And that means some things that would be otherwise kind of confusing and hard to make sense of, Luke helps us make sense of. But it also means there is this wonderful richness that Luke's... Um, multiple tellings of some of Jesus's central teachings and then Luke's distinctive teachings, particularly in the form form of these stories or parables, I just found uh, wonderfully rich. And it just keeps drawing me back over and over again. Uh, time to stop. Thank you both. Glad you uh, could show up this afternoon and um, hopefully we'll see some other folks back. As I say, I know today several people said they weren't going to be able to be here and I hope uh, we'll see folks back again next week. But thank you and uh, we'll see you next week.